With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, everyone. Thank you guys so much for coming. What an amazing crowd. Yeah. Um, Hello, Australia. Yeah, hello, Australia. Uh, welcome to The Waves for Thursday, March 14th, the live from Sydney edition. Uh, I'm Christina Cotarucci. I'm a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast, Outward. And we are recording this episode in beautiful summertime, I guess, Sydney, Australia. Um, We're at this beautiful venue. I want to say it's uh, the Sydney Music Hall, the Sydney Opera House. Opera House. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe our listeners have heard of it. I don't know. Um, Next to me, we've got New York Magazine features editor Noreen Malone. Hi, Hi, Noreen. Hi, Sydney. Uh, and this, of course, is Slate's senior managing producer of podcasts, June Thomas. Hey. Um, this is a huge honor to be here. We really want to thank the All About Women Festival for having us. It's still surreal to have been brought halfway around the world <laughs> to meet some of our Australian listeners. You guys have emailed us so many great recommendations for guests and for things to do here. We had no idea, I had no idea, I should use an I statement, how many incredible <laughs> Australian listeners we have. So thank you guys so much for coming. Um, we have a great show planned for today. We're going to start off with a review of Isn't It Romantic? a romantic comedy about romantic comedies starring two Australian leads, Rebel Wilson and Liam Hemsworth. Not the flagship Hemsworth, (laughs) but a Hemsworth nonetheless. We wanted you to be able to relate, so we went Hemsworth. (laughs) Yeah. We try to have a little, like, something Australian every segment. Uh, We also have a special guest today, Nakia Louie. So many of you requested her. We're so lucky that she was able to come on her day off from the play that she's currently staging and starring in right here at the Sydney Opera House. It's called How to Rule the World. We saw it yesterday, it was fantabulous. So we're gonna talk to Nikki about the play, indigenous politics, and making comedy that explores race and gender. For our third segment, we're gonna talk about cancel culture and specifically two young adult fiction works who have, uh, their authors have recently pulled their books from publication after YA fans said they were problematic. And for our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to take questions from you. So get your is it sexist questions ready. Hopefully nothing sexist happens to you during the show. But if it does, that would be a great thing to bring up. (laughs) Uh, And we'll tell you how sexist it is or is not. All right. Isn't it romantic? Mm. Uh, So the film, it came out last month in the States. I think in Australia, it's going straight to Netflix. Um, June, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? 
Well, Rebel Wilson stars. She is a Australian architect in New York. I'm sure there's tons of those. <laughs> and she is, well, she doesn't seem like, I don't, it's really hard to tell if she enjoys her life. She kind of has a crummy apartment, but it's a semi-realistic apartment. Her dog doesn't obey her. Like, the people at the office, like, she's actually friendly with her assistant, so obviously there's something up there. Mm-hmm. And then she gets hit on the head in my least favorite uh, rom-com trope and finds herself in a New York that is smelling of lavender and she finds herself living in all of these negative romantic comedy tropes that she has disparaged and and moaned about. And that is kind of the summary. (laughs) But what do you think about it? I mean... I wish these days that we could just let romantic comedies be romantic comedies. I mean, do they have to be like, you know, deconstructions and, uh, you know, breaking it all down? Because in the end, isn't what she lives through, doesn't it suffer from all the same faults that she uh, identifies in romantic comedies? I mean, did you guys like it? Yeah, I mean, that's the point of the movie, is she ends up realizing that the things she hated about romantic comedies were actually great, and all she needed to do was love herself, and then she was gonna, like, get the great guy who wasn't the guy she thought it was, and I don't know, I don't think it departed too far from romantic comedies. I almost wish that, it, it didn't feel like it had a cogent political view for a movie that was really hitting you over the head, like, no pun intended, with the fact that it was trying to make a political statement about romantic comedies. I watched it on Netflix here in Australia, and oh, wow. I fell asleep twice. Um, <laughs> that's what I thought of the movie. I'm not kidding. How much was jet lag? How much was commentary on the movie? <laughs> Combination. Okay. Uh, I... I just hated this movie. Uh, (laughs) And I love romantic comedies. I think it it sort of was playing off of the period of time when romantic comedies had become cliches, right? So the director said, oh, you know, this is an homage to the 80s and 90s, the classic romantic comedies. But I actually think what he had in mind was the period of time in the early aughts when it was all Katherine Heigl and, like, bland you know, hunky male lead who you can't keep track of them. The plot is forgettable. No one has any actual chemistry or charisma. Nothing is distinct about it. It's just like sort of blonde and homogenous. I felt like that was the concept of a romantic comedy that it was playing off of. Like it wasn't actually getting at what do people connect with in these movies. There was so much time spent on like the Easter eggs of like, okay, which reference is this? That there was actually like no soul in the movie. Like the, the two leads barely had any time on screen together, you know, the, the two who end up together. Yeah. And, and I just found it, like, why are we in this place with romantic comedies? It's, it's very similar to the plot of, um, do you guys remember the Amy Schumer movie that it's, we talked about? Yeah, I feel she gets hit on the head too. Pretty, I feel yeah. pretty, exactly. yeah. I'm really concerned. I think that romantic comedies need to really clarify their concussion protocol. <laughs> because, like, this, I've had this problem for a long time. Like, Singing in the Rain, you know, supposed to be one of the great movies of all time. All I can think about is, like, that slapstick scene where they're, like, throwing around the pieces of wood. Like, I don't remember And banging that. people on the head. It makes me crazy. It's like one of the great scenes in, in movies. And all I can think, like, don't hit people on the head. It's really not good for them. <laughs> Uh, well, that's probably the moral of the story of Isn't It Romantic. <laughs> um, I mean, I did have fun 
like trying to identify all the different, like the wet streets, it, which is not something I realized was a trope until I watched Unreal, which is an incredible Lifetime series. Y'all should watch if you haven't. Um, where it's like they hose down the cobblestones or the pavement to make it look glistening and fresh when actually <laughs> if you're there, there's like shit on the ground or you know <laughs> other things that smell bad. Um, like I had fun with that. Rebel Wilson is really funny. Um, but also the it helped me realize what actually makes a romantic comedy work, which is just, it's fun to watch two people have chemistry, two charismatic people be charismatic together. And I think both Rebel Wilson and the guy who plays her love interest, um, Adam Devine, Mm. they both have a character that they play in every movie, and they play those characters in this movie, so I wasn't, it like wasn't fun to watch them together because they were just both being the same people that they always are. And I don't get how we're supposed to read Adam Devine. Like, he's, you know, I guess he's supposed to be the schlub, but other than, like, not having like that swimmer's body thing that the minor Helmsworth has. Like, he's not unattractive. Like, yeah. he's not. And neither is Rebel Wilson. No. And I kind of thought that that was the point, that they were like, oh, look, one thing that really bothered me, I don't want to just shit on this movie because I, you know, I did enjoy it, but it's like she transforms in her fake romantic comedy world into like, you know, beautiful hair and wakes up with makeup already on and like amazing clothes. And then when she comes out of her coma or whatever she's in, again, like with they're no not clear with the con- concussion, um, like she continues to blow dry her hair. And it's like, they're, I feel like they're trying to say like, oh, look, if she just took care of herself, you know? Well, <laughs> exactly. That's what I mean, that it's not really, I understand the point they're trying to make, but the difference between the worlds is it's too small. So they decry the lack of diversity in romantic comedies, which actually is a thing about every movie set in New York, has no people of color in them. But there's only two people of color in them. So like, isn't it just the same? So I think it reflects this like geek marvelization of the movie universe in general, right? You can't just have a rom-com that exists on its own. It has to be within a larger universe where there are references to other movies. Like, that's the way that studios presume that we all watch movies now, right? Like, you can't just be, like, a person who's a fan of Notting Hill. You have to be a fan of, like, the larger Julia Roberts universe. And then there have to be references to this. But I just just think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is that brings people to rom-coms versus what brings people to these other highly successful movies. And I think like Hollywood needs to figure out what's going on there and that's not to say that there haven't been great rom-coms in recent years something like The Big Sick which wasn't promoted as a classic rom-com is actually a really interesting twist on it I think rather than sort of just looking to straight up update old ones. I think there are more interesting things to do with, you know, new uh, new visions of what a rom com could be. And Crazy Rich Asians, which was a huge hit huge this hit. Past summer. And so I think that uh, like this, like you said, Noreen, this particular movie doesn't necessarily feel in conversation with the current rom com zeitgeist, which is why it felt like a little bit out of left field for me. But it does feel like there may be a rom-com resurgence happening. We've talked about, you know, uh, To All the Boys I Loved Before, which was a huge hit on Netflix, which I loved. Um, so maybe you can make a classic rom-com now. It just, it, it will avoid some of the pitfalls that this movie is making fun of seven years too late. <laughs> <laughs> 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, should we get on to our interview? Yes. So Nakia Louie stars in the television sketch show Black Comedy. She has written and starred in a scripted comedy series, Kiki and Kitty, which is about a woman who meets her own personified talking vagina. I haven't seen it. I need to see it. I know. She's co-hosted the BuzzFeed podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal, and she's here with us today. Please welcome to the waves, Nakia Louie. A lot of fans in the room, clearly. Um, so we saw your play yesterday. Thank you. We had a great time. Um, so the gist of the play, for those of you who haven't seen it, you should all Yet. see it. Right. Um, it's these three young progressive Australians of color who decide to get behind or run and uh, basically hold auditions for the, the blandest white guy in the world who they can turn into a political candidate to do their bidding, um, to basically stop a white supremacist policy from passing in parliament. Um, My first question for you, this is something that I was thinking about the whole time I was watching it. How much were you taking from actual Australian politics? (laughs) Gosh. I'm starting to think it's a case of how much are they taking from me, (laughs) which is scary. it was, it was really interesting. Um, I, I wrote the play because, you know, I, am, I do have a platform. You know, I'm very privileged in that way. But I also, you know, I'm a regular Australian and I, sometimes I feel so disconnected from the democratic process. And, you know, with a lot of, you know, rhetoric around political systems, what we value as communities changing with leadership, this idea of what democracy looks like and how you can actually impact governance was something that I wanted to explore. Um, then looking at people, I know I don't, there was this candidate called Ricky Muir who got in a couple of years ago into Senate. Does anyone remember Ricky Muir? Yes. And he was a really lovely surprise because it was like he was this guy, I think they, they ran him, he was like the motor enthusiast party. They just made up this party. <laughs> and I think the, one of the reasons he got in is this guy uh, who calls himself the preference whisperer. Um, <laughs> kind of had a grudge against someone who was sitting in that seat and was like, well, I'm going to get you out by getting this guy in. Ricky Miller turned out to be a lovely surprise, but so often with talks about policy within Australian politics, a lot of big decisions come down to negotiating within the Senate, and that seems to be made up with a whole heap of kind of fringe value um, candidates. Uh, So I wanted to kind of explore this idea of, like, I can't understand how this system works. and do that within, yeah, make a play out of it. Um, and then as, as I was writing the play, certain things were kind of happening that really uh, resembled the play. Uh, <laughs> you were manifesting it. Yeah, 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 it was really odd. I was like, am I a psychic? Oh my goodness. Um, do I come from a long line of Aboriginal psychics? <laughs> I was like, no, we don't. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, it was really difficult in that sense. Um, 
because how do you make fun of a, of a political world that is kind of making fun of itself? I wrote an ad for a conservative candidate called Mervo Thomas in the play, where he kind of eats pies and throws balls, and I like, wrote that in the script. And then, um, uh, what's his name? Bob Catter. Uh, he released an ad where they ate pies and threw balls. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit... Yeah, we've got a guy in the States who released an ad in the most recent campaign cycle where he was literally chopping wood, which was a scene from the comedy Veep, which is making fun of the political process. Like, same thing. I'm like, oh, did you get your idea from the comedy? It's like, not a good idea. It's hard. It's hard to, you know, like really kind of make fun of of that stuff. Well, I kept thinking of the U.S. election, the 2020 like race for the Democratic nomination while watching this. I knew nothing about Australian politics, but it just felt like so much of the rhetoric that we hear about the Democratic nomination involves like, oh, we have to get a white guy to appeal to this certain audience, but he's got to like have our values. And it just felt like... Um, People are really, people are really thinking the way that your your three main characters are thinking in the play. Yeah, I, I think that's you know, it's it's. Um, one day I realized a lot of my favorite writers, you know, have been kind of like old white male drunks, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, within theatre, you know, it's been kind of a history of you know white males as these you know ideal playwrights. And I realized one day, no matter, you know, how drunk I get, no matter how chauvinistic or (laughs) however I get, I will never be that. Um, I will never be that white guy. And it was this amazing revelation because it's like, I don't want to be that guy. I am not that guy. But how many people are that guy? Actually, the majority of people aren't that. Um, And also, you know, it's a value system in which we uphold things. So if we look at things as values, then, you know, we don't really... Those people at the core who uphold, you know, these values that exclude so many of us, they're they're actually the minority and we're the majority. So for myself, the way I look at it when I work and and when I, you know, speak about things is, well, if I think that, I'm not that special. There must be, like, thousands of other people thinking that too, um, which means... Cynically, I have a product. Uh, I can write this play and hopefully people will come see it or watch the show or whatnot. So for me, that's kind of my approach to things. If I'm thinking it, then I'm really not all that special. Um, When you launched the podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal with Miranda Tapsell, um, which as an American listening to it is, is, it's a place to learn a lot about Australia, I think. Um, You said that it's time to talk about all the things this country has trouble talking about. Dating, sex, relationships, weight, race. And you did that in the play too. You, you didn't just do talk about those things in the podcast, but also in the play. But with so much humor. I mean, you're clearly a very funny writer. Is the humor essential to talking about those really big issues? I personally think humour is such an incredible tool to talk about politics because it's like a little bit of a trick. Um, You can kind of, you know, make people laugh and then whilst they're laughing, kind of punch them in the tummy with (laughs) some politics or, you know, disarm them. I mean, I don't think we would... I don't think people really change minds. I think it's really hard to change minds. I think it's a lot easier to change hearts. And this sounds really, sounds so lame and tacky. It sounds like a political candidate. Like, (laughs) are you running? Uh, I'd be a terrible political candidate. I have too many nude selfies floating about. (laughs) I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, oh, God. I've been on a lot of bad dates, too. So a lot of people probably have a grudge against me. Um, But... uh, too many secrets. <laughs> uh, 
anyways, um, so I <laughs> kind of started thinking about all my secrets. I was like, oh God, don't say them. Um, so I, anyways, I am. Um, I, I think, you know, with, with humour, when you make people laugh, you're kind of opening up hearts because we all laugh. And the one thing I think that is, you know, really innately human is the fact that we all laugh and we all laugh at really different things. Like our humour can be, you know, that can be really cultural, but it can also just be incredibly primal. Some people like slapstick, some people don't, you know. So for myself, I think humour is just a way to talk about it, but also it's a coping mechanism. Um, my grandmother said to me, uh, and she said this on her deathbed, and she had a really terrible death, um, she said that the day, I was the last person with her before she passed and she was in hospital and she said to me, what can you do if you don't laugh? And she said that my, my entire life growing up. And so, you know, I always think in, in the most dire of circumstances when things are really tough, what can you do if you, you can't laugh? You know, and what's the point of living if you can't laugh? Like, oh, that sounds really bleak, but, you know, um, <laughs> you know it's, it's, you know, but it's, it's, it's our light, it's our brightness and it's our hope. So for myself, being able to talk about things with laughter is, is, is a gift to be able to do and just to be able to survive. Um, and that's why I, I, I find it a lot easier to talk about. Are there like special that. considerations that you take or... Do you find it's hard to joke about these kinds of issues without crossing the line into something that somebody might find, you know, offensive? Or, or, or has anybody ever sort of told you that your jokes were offensive? Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, I write a lot of sketch comedy as well. I write on a lot of other people's uh, TV shows. I do, like, I do a lot of comedy writing. It's my bread and butter. Um, I think what's really interesting is so often in Australia... Um, and I think this is not just applicable to Australia, but um, we look at we look at humour as if if I tell jokes, they're really they're political. Like I don't really write satire, I don't really write general humour because I'm a woman. Automatically, my jokes are going to be political because I'm a Aboriginal woman. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that's just she's over there filling her own niche, right? <laughs> um, and it's kind of great in a way because it means that like I can say things that other people can't, which is a real competitive edge um but i think yeah i think you have to you can't be afraid of of offending because not everyone's going to think the same i think you have to be aware you know the whole punching punching down punching up culture you don't want to make fun of people but i think we need to really be aware of like this whole idea of like you can't laugh about this you can't laugh about that you know i've, I've used blackface and sketches and, and so forth um We've never received any, you know, like a lot of Aboriginal people have loved those sketches because we're making fun of blackface and trying to dissect why is it that white mm. people in Australia still do it and find it so acceptable and how do we let them off so easy? It's got a slightly different history here to then in the States, but also a lot of similarities. Um, and, you know, failing isn't always... Offending people isn't, isn't a bad thing. You <laughs> need to learn, grow, move on. Um, and make sure you don't do it again. Or if you stand by your work, you can disagree with people. If you are engaging with your understanding, your knowledge, your context, your privilege, and theirs as well. People have different opinions. Just because we're all diverse doesn't mean we're going to agree and we're the same person. Do people get mad about the use of white men as a punchline almost? Or like the way that that's constructed as an identity within your plays? Yes. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Pray tell gets mad about that. <laughs> <No>. Hesitation. <laughs> Women get mad uh, about that, I'm sure. Um, you know, I... 
with part of How to Rule the World, a lot of that play is kind of about, for myself, like the madness of white men. So <laughs> I do write a, a lot of scenes with white men that are quite ridiculous. It's, I guess it's how I think white men behave behind closed doors. <laughs> Turns out they kind of do. Like um, throwing a rugby ball back and forth, like yeah, in, in playing the back a lot of sports yeah. and drinking a lot of scotch <laughs> um, and really into suits. Um, <laughs> Um, and power, but power being nothing more than an idea beyond that. Um, yeah, I do critique whiteness a lot, and the reason I, I think that is because, um, you know, my Aboriginality is in a lot of ways defined by whiteness. My, I wasn't an Aboriginal, my family weren't Aboriginal until, you know, Australia was colonised and they were called Aboriginal. That's not to say that we don't have a culture, that's to say the way in which the space we're given to identify is very much constructed by like a white colonial patriarch lens. So I think so often we define and try and articulate our identities as I'm a woman, I'm a feminist, I'm a, a queer person, I'm an Aboriginal person, and, and our empowerment comes from having space to articulate that as opposed to actually constructing why we think that's our empowerment, um, if that makes any sense. Um, I think about this time, I, my, this journalist did an interview on a profile on myself and we, we took him out to my family's home where I grew up and um, he was really lovely and wanted to just get um, my dad's tribal name right. And so he's like, so, you know, Raymond, what, may I ask where your people are from? And my dad's like, well, who are my people? Uh, where do you think I'm from? I don't know where I'm from. I'm just Jack. I'm just Raymond. I was, and I was like, oh my God, like, dad, just shut up and give me the This poor guy's being so earnest. But it's this idea of of deconstructing how you put together your own history and the ways in which you know and value yourself. So I, for, for myself, deconstructing what white masculinity is um, and my relationship to that is, is really important. And yeah, it's really, it's interesting. I get called Aboriginal all the time and we do our welcome to countries, our acknowledgement, acknowledgement of countries. Um, you know, whenever I'm introduced, I'm, uh, I, I often get described as a proud Aboriginal Gamilaroi and Torres Strait Islander woman. Um, when I do photographs of me the first few years of my career they'd always have me you know looking up to the stars <laughs> have white male photographers being Mystical. like look like the future's ahead of you <laughs> um i but whenever i mention white like if someone's a white male you articulate whiteness you you mention their identity it's you know all of a sudden you're the racist you're the person who's discriminating against them because articulating their identity is a form of discrimination to them and i think that's because being neutral and being invisible is the greatest privilege one can have. So I think it's really important to deconstruct that. Sorry for ranting. <laughs> no, that's yeah. great. Now I feel a little bad because my question, I feel maybe it's not on this level of profundity, but when I was researching <laughs> your life and your work, I became obsessed with Kiki and Kitty because the notion of a show <laughs> about a woman and a talking, I know I could have looked it up, but I, did, I wanted you to describe for our American <laughs> listeners, was it really a show about a woman's talking vagina? And if so, is there nothing you can't show on Australian television? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Maybe someone needs to, maybe this, you know, this, uh, my ABC, we need to get rid of it. Because clearly I'm, <laughs> I'm taking advantage. Um, no, I, uh, um, so I, I was writing, it was when I was writing the first season of Black Comedy and um, I was doing a Christmas video for this uh, 
women's uh, charity, like, like a Christmas video uh, to say, you know, Merry Christmas. And I was really tired. And I was like, oh, I don't really want to do this video. Um, like, I don't want to have to put makeup on and like set up my life, like my, my laptop and put a really bright light on my face so I look, you know, better. Um, it's just a lot of work. So I was said to my friend who ended up playing my vagina in the show, <laughs> Elaine Compton. I said to Elaine, hey, I've got this idea. Why don't, why don't I go, hey, I'm Nikia Louie. And then you come out and go, and I'm Nikia's vagina. <laughs> and then you say the Christmas message. <laughs> and then I don't have to do it. And then I got obsessed with her being um, my virgin, which is, I don't know if you've seen the YouTube clip, my virgin. If you haven't, go watch it. It's amazing. Um, and so uh, that's kind of how this, I, I started thinking about that because, um, you know, I was going for kind of my own like little like sexual empowerment revolution thing and um, like I'm gonna you know lean into like black mediocrity really is what I was doing no black excellence at that point in my life a lot of black fucking up really which should we celebrate it just as much as all the other stuff um, and um, sorry to be so crude and um, so I was going through this you know little like you know mini sexual drug revolution period and you know like I'm gonna you know, I was like finishing up my uni degree and all of that jazz. And um, so I thought, oh, if I, like, what if my vagina did come to life? What it, would it look like? And I was like, well, clearly it'd be Elaine. Um, you know, this big, beautiful woman, like, fat, and she'd wear How did sequins. she feel about it? She loved it. Um, she calls me, <laughs> she calls me her owner. <laughs> because it was one of hot but it was like um it would be it would be my vagina would be fabulous and they would be all like whenever I have self-doubt about anything in my life it would be they would lead me through the way and and I have to say my vagina leads me through a lot of things it's the core of my being it's my intuition it's my heart like it's all here this actually and I think is a vagina monologue <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Vagina monologue. I know. I'm like having a flashback to college right now yeah. <laughs> I did a vagina monologue when I was like in high school I had no idea what I was doing um, <laughs> Anyways, um, so I and I would drink martinis at the time. I didn't have a taste for martini, you know, like martinis. Like I would, be, I'd order a martini and then like cringe every time I drank it. <laughs> you know, I was still really into like like anything that was sweet. Yeah. Um, and I was like, that's who my vagina would be. And I started thinking about kind of my own experience within you know corporate law and who I was. You know, a few you know when I was in my early twenties and. Um, that's how Kiki and Kitty came about, which is a, a young lady who is kind of, um, it's, it's a buddy comedy. It's a bit like Drop Dead Fred. She's at a really hard point. She goes through a sexual trauma and her vagina comes to save her. And she realises that she is, like, to, in order to love herself, she has to love her vagina. Um, and she finds a lot of faith in herself and then quits her job as a lawyer and follows her true passion of being a ice skater. So... <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, gets revenge on her assaulter and, yeah. I don't well, know if I'm doing it. I should have got the press kit. Really. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, yeah. What uh, was the process like of getting, uh, you know, sexual violence onto TV? Was that, did you experience any pushback along the way? Yeah, it was really interesting. So I pitched the show to ABC, um, Sally Riley, who's uh, the head of um, programming, scripted programming at um, ABC, our national broadcaster, who's an Aboriginal woman. Um, she's amazing. She's created so many amazing shows and has really changed what Australian television is today across the board. Um, and she's just this kind of, you know, really strong-minded Aboriginal woman and, and we don't see that type of stuff happening, you know, um, 
publicly. It's very much in the background. It's changing what people see on their screens. So she called me and she's like, what, do you, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've got this idea about... It's about a girl. It's called Kiki and Kitty. It's about exactly what I said, a, a little black girl in a big world and she needs to learn to love her vagina and all of that stuff, like my little log line. And Sally so went, I love it. Got on the phone with a producer, uh, Liz Watts, and um, <laughs> I was like, Liz, Nikki has got this show about a talking vagina. Want to come produce it? Liz has done a lot of really, like, prestige <laughs> drama, <laughs> like Animal Kingdom, you know, was a, show, like, a movie she produced. Um, and uh, she produced it for me and uh, it was commissioned really quickly and I was really, it was uh, a real kind of easy process like that. Um, but then we started getting other funders on board and that's when it became a little bit tricky. So along the way, women thought it was hilarious, you know, loved the idea, um, didn't really have like questions about how the world works, what the world was, but, you know, didn't, the, the, the plot of her and her getting drunk and her, um, her colleague kind of taking, well, attempting to take advantage of her whilst being drunk um, uh, didn't, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, it's, it's really common, that happening um, to, to young women, um, or not just young women, to women, um, or to people. Uh, it was when we got funders involved, a lot of them being head of networks, head of departments, commissioning editors in high positions, a, a lot of those positions occupied by white, you know, straight cis white men, started freaking out and it was really quite a na like a difficult process to navigate um i remember i was stuck in hawaii my mum got a bit ill there like stuck in hawaii sounds really good it wasn't um <laughs> we were in hawaii and i was about two weeks from going into pre-production and i got this huge amount of notes from one of the eps who must have just had like a little bit of a freak out himself just being like i don't know if we should uh I don't know if we should have this sexual violence in it. It's a bit taboo, you know? Um, he also had questions about... He had a whole heap of thoughts about Nietzsche and the vagina. <laughs> oh, my um, God. It's exactly what every woman needs is, like, a man that equating her vagina to something uh, yeah. Nietzsche said. I know. And also, yeah, it's like, great. I'm really glad you, like, did first-year philosophy and, like, my <laughs> vagina has resonance with you now. But, like, it was... Yeah, but it was... It was, it was a real pushback, though. And, um, like, it was very... It was a bit scary. And so I, I was there, and it was, it was bizarre. I'm... In Hawaii, my mum's in hospital where The Descendants was filmed. It's a really nice hospital, actually. Thank God for health insurance. And around the world, it was when all the marches were happening against Trump, all the women's oh. marches. And I was having this conversation, this conference call at like three in the morning. And I'm sitting on the balcony. There's this tiki bar playing downstairs. And I just had had it. And I just kind of said to him, number one, Australia, this is, like, we are known for our dark humour. It's what I love about being Australian, to be honest, is you look at things like Chopper, Animal Kingdom, like, we have so much dark humour, like, actual violent humour, except it's done by men. We don't question that. We, we laugh at that. We embrace that. We go, that is our culture. Second of all, there are millions of women marching around the world because of sexual harassment, really blatant sexual harassment, that we found commonality, that we have a diaspora. You think that we are defined by our trauma? You think that, that we don't live lives and laugh? No, we fight against it and we continue to live. So you need to kind of wake up to yourself because this is a taboo for you but it's because you don't experience it. We all have to live it. So maybe instead of making it a taboo, just listen and it won't be mm. that big of an issue. Ooh. 
Would you ever do a show about a talking penis, or do you feel like the market's oversaturated? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I know of no shows. Maybe maybe a show where people play with their penis and turn them into puppets. Has anyone ever done that? Oh, that's an excellent idea. I wouldn't want to culturally appropriate the like penis culture personally. But. <laughs> Um, I think we have time for one more question. Yeah. He's got a burning one. Mm. So I just got to sit down one now. I'm going to ask, ask a heavier one. So one of the themes of your of how to rule the world is the possibility of treaty uh, with Aboriginal people. Do you, I mean do you think that there will be will that treaty happen anytime soon? Is that something that's a, a realistic outcome in the relatively immediate future? I hope so. Like personally, would really like to see a treaty. I had the privilege of um, being. I, I did. Like, we have a news panel show here called Q and A, um, and stands for questions and answers. Answers. <laughs> answers. I was uh, like, huh, answers. My one line. I stuffed it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I went on the. We had uh, the Uluru statement last year, and. Um, that was basically there were all these consultations around Australia with different Aboriginal communities and groups um, at a really grassroots level, uh, talking about how do we, what do we implement going forward in the future. Um, one of the propositions wasn't a treaty. Out of that, um, it was a voice to Parliament within the Constitution. Um, so, so Aboriginal voices can't get removed from from government, which they can, and we've seen that happen numerous times within Australian governments where we've had an Aboriginal body and it's been dismantled or just completely erased when a new uh, Prime Minister or a new party comes in. Um, so it was a multitude of things. And the other part of that which was really moving, which was a Makarata, it's also truth-telling, a truth and forgiveness uh, process, which is quite similar to what happened in South Africa after, um, after, after apartheid. And that was just talking about like having a truthful conversations about what happened in Australia genocide, the mass removal, the dispossession of land, um, and, and, and forgiving. Like, a big part of that is, is forgiveness and reconciliation. Unfortunately, it was the day we did Q&A, and that was the day it all kind of happened backstage, it was over. We're going on to that panel knowing that it was over. It was actually I get really emotional thinking about it, because even though you know, for myself as an Aboriginal person and as an artist, I quite often talk in these weird esoterical ideological ideas, which are really impractical. That's why I'm an artist and not a politician. <laughs> but, you know, so many Aboriginal people gave their time. You know, Aboriginal people have been protesting since first settlement, and there's records of that for us to have a voice. You know, um, the very... Uh, anyway, so th that, that protest has been happening for so long, and basically, in my opinion, what happened was because we dared, we were given this, this narrative of because we dared to ask for too much, we, we doomed ourselves to fail. And I think that's what constantly happens to marginalised people. And I think it's a really significant issue and symbolic within Australia with First Nations people. It's this idea of asking for too much. We should never be able to ask for too much when what we're asking for is basically about equality and allowing other people to have hope and space in this country. Um, I do... I mean, we're looking at state-based treaties. Australia is the only kind of uh, like UK colonised type of country that doesn't have a treaty with its First Nations people. Victoria's having those conversations at the moment about having a state-based treaty. Um, 
It's complicated though, because what often so happens is that treaty, it's an agreement between two sovereign bodies. Within Australia, that the people who get to dictate the terms of the treaty tend to be the government. And so what you have is a lot of communities, I mean, I can't speak for Victorian people, I'm not from that area, but a lot of people feeling like they're not being listened to, that they're having to come a certain, that we'll only get a treaty if we're doing it on your rules. Mm. Um, but at this point, you know, a, a national treaty that basically acknowledges Aborigin Aboriginal people as sovereign, that acknowledges, acknowledges us as a nation prior to colonisation, I think that that is so incredibly important to who we are as a country because they're, like, this has always been a diverse country. There has always been diversity. There's been people from all around the world. Um, there's always been communities here. There's been nations. Australia wasn't this country that was cultivated by the British. We weren't, you know, colonised and then it's a gift that we got to, you know, have this community we have. It was built by Aboriginal people. It was built by diverse people. It was built by people who didn't have the vote. It was built by all these people who sat outside of that idea of power and those people who now still get to dictate the treaty. So I think if we have a treaty, what we're saying as a symbolic level and hopefully that symbolism will have some effect in our community, community is that, number one, culture is no longer... Like, history is no longer part of a culture war. Aboriginal people were here. Let's stop debating that. Um, and that it opens up the space of what Australia is and what we can be by saying this is a country that is always... That, that this idea of, of it being a white country, of it being a male country, of it being a colonial patrial patriarchal type of country that it never was that and hopefully I, f I think hope like I hope that treaty might be able to do that it seems like we're getting closer if maybe we with a new government we've got a lot of Aboriginal people in government at the moment Pat Dodson with the Labor Party for one um quite a few Aboriginal people with the Labor Party not saying you should vote Labor um <laughs> but it's really you know I I, I you know I, I go between myself Labor and the Greens and I'll speak let's talk about that stuff but um <laughs> for myself you know if 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 labor were to get in there's a possibility we might actually have an aboriginal person who's the minister for aboriginal people that would be amazing <laughs> so yeah. so practically just like that we might have a shot yeah well Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. you. Thank you for having me and just ranting at you. No, no, thank you. Thank I, you, thank you. I don't talk to people all week. Just, I'm just <laughs> acting. So I'm like, oh my God, friends. So thank you for having thank me. You. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Great. Thank cool. you. Thank, thank you. you. Woo! All right, cancel culture. Ooh. So generally when we're talking about cancel culture, we're talking about the ability or, or perceived ability of lay people on social media and in, on blogs and elsewhere to uh, sort of demand personal and professional consequences for people who have done something problematic. The young adult fiction world is currently uh, riled up over a few cancellations of authors who uh, have pulled their books over publications, or pulled their books from publications after people said things about them. Noreen, what's been going on? 
Sure. Well, um, in the YA world specifically, there is uh, a first-time author named Kosoko Jackson who had written a book called A Place for Wolves. What's interesting about him is that he was, until recently, or maybe still is, employed as a sensitivity reader, which mm. is a job very specific to, as I understand it, very specific to the YA book publishing world. So he's someone who, he is black and he's gay, and so he would sort of read uh, novels pre-publication and say, hey, you might want to watch out for this or that, this could offend people, this could be taken the wrong way. Um, he said his novel in, um, the Kosovo War. Um, he is not uh, from that part of the world, but he sort of imaginatively, you know, placed the character there. And um, he got in a ton of trouble for writing a Muslim character when he wasn't Muslim, for, um, you know, centering, this is not my phrase, but centering or privileging um, an American during this conflict. Um, and so he pulled the book himself. He self-canceled uh, because he thought it would be better than to be canceled on Twitter. Um, and then, you know, YA is sort of a niche uh, kind of world where this happens a lot, but then you see this happening, um, you know, you see Twitter campaigns, uh, to my mind, that are um, addressing more serious subjects like R. Kelly or Michael Jackson, you know, should their music be quote-unquote canceled. Um, so it's actually both a niche thing that's happening mm -hmm. in our culture and like a huge thing, yeah. right? Like how much power should people have to sort of say, um, you know, let's not consume this product. And how much power do people actually have, right? Like, so you see, you see with something like a YA book, you see these things being pulled, you see the reviews, um, you know, coming in and sort of tanking something before it's published. But then with something like Michael Jackson, I, you know, I wonder, you know, no matter how much you think might it be um, upset about, about the, uh, the very clear indications that he abused children, like, you can't cancel Michael Jackson, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I, it's, this um, YA thing really, like, punched me in the gut because the two people who have pulled their own books were both people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, it just made me think, like, the, the people who are most likely to self-cancel or be canceled are the people who are listening and not the actual mm -hmm. people who are publishing like the worst stuff who would not care if you know some progressive young readers on Twitter were saying like oh the thing you wrote was racist it's actually people who are trying not to be and who are listening um, and so I'm like what is like what's being accomplished here I like remember as a kid reading books even though I I read that uh more than half of YA books are read by adults, so I think it's a little bit of like concern trolling going on in terms of like protecting kids from these bad ideas. But I do remember there being a lot of books that would take some sort of um, like historical moment or event or injustice and introduce a kid to it through a character who was like them. So for me, that would be like a young white American, you know, and kids have like a very narrow worldview sometimes. And so that's like, oh, I'm exploring the Kosovo war through the eyes of someone who's like me. I don't think that in particular is a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, what do you think, June? I, I do find these situations different. The, the YA thing feels hard because it is, um, it's not just when you're making your own decision. Like the whole idea that you know, in, in the States, for example, there's this company, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Apparently people think its chicken sandwiches are amazing. 
I'm like this myself. Have you eaten Chick-fil-A? I've, eaten, well, yeah. I've, I've only had it because somebody actually bought it at, at our office. They brought it in for our... I hope like, you said something. I did, but then I was like, well, it's here. They've already paid for it. I'll taste it. Anyway, <laughs> tell um, the people why oh, yeah. we specifically as queer people should not be eating Chick-fil-A. Yes, well, so they are... I mean, first, it's a very Christian company that in itself is not a problem. That would not be a reason to boycott it, but they... The CEO and the, the company as a whole has made some very homophobic statements about uh, marriage equality. And they've given money to yeah. anti-gay groups. Yeah. I don't yeah. know why I'm getting mad at you. I know. <laughs> you hate it! Okay, but wait. Wait, you, you just you used the word boycott, though. Yeah. So that's what's interesting to me, yeah. is that I think yeah. cancel culture has a very specific connotation, and it's somewhat pejorative, right? When we say yeah. we're boycotting someone yeah. or something, we're taking yeah. a moral stand. Yeah. When we say cancel culture, people think, oh, the online mobs with their pitchforks being silly about identity politics. Mm. Right, exactly. Because, I mean, it just seems such an obvious thing that if something offends your personal values, it makes perfect sense to not patronize that company, to not eat those chicken sandwiches, to even perhaps encourage people who share your values to not eat those chicken sandwiches. But for people who've maybe never tasted a chicken sandwich to, you know, take a toot and, and like pile on and then make it so that other people can't eat those chicken sandwiches. See, I take I'm issue with that analogy. Yeah, let's use a different because example. <laughs> I think there's a difference between like keeping a piece of art from being yes, put yes. into the world, yes. especially some of the people haven't even yeah. read the books yet. Yeah. And so yeah. a lot of them were quotes taken out of context. Yeah. In one of the situations, it was like the book was about a uh, like, supernatural world where there's werewolves and fairies and whatever, and the human being is taught that werewolves and fairies are bad. And so it's like, she's racist, pretty much. But then she learns over the course of book that racism right. is bad, and right. like werewolves and fairies yeah. are great, and she joins their team. But people have pulled quotes out of context from the racist part of the book, uh, like that kids, even the slowest child mind, would be able to be like, huh, this book is telling me that that's not the right way right. to think, you know? Right. There's a difference between that and keeping money from being funneled to yes. an organization that gives money to like an ex-gay ministry. Yeah, no, totally. Or to the estate of Michael Jackson, which is yes. currently you know, smearing the men who are accusing Michael Jackson of sexual assault. Or R. Kelly, who, you know, is a living, breathing right. artist. I mean, this is what's frustrating. This goes back to what you said about, you know, it's the people who self-cancel are, are people of color. It's like, I feel like it, cancellation is only successful when the stakes are very low. Yeah. When it's a big corporation, when it's a big person, it so rarely actually happens that people, um, people who care very deeply about these things are able to sort of eat into the bottom line. Like, I, I don't know if Chick-fil-A has been at all affected by this. Right. I doubt that it has. Well, yeah, because there are then people who want to make a point yeah. by, by going there. Just, even, yeah. like, twice as much as before. Just, when like, blasting, like, yeah. I believe I can fly while eating your Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yeah. Reading your problematic <laughs> YA book. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but then, then the other thing about in the, the specifics of the YA world, that there have been other books where there has been this similar kind of pre-publication kerfuffle. And if the person or the publisher holds out and publishes it anyway, often these books are very successful. It's just if you allow your, like, it's, it depends on how you see it, right? If you listen to the voices who are, you know, pointing out your mistakes, maybe you pull it. If you're just like, these people haven't even read it, let's just plow through it, 
you know, a book is a very difficult and time-consuming thing to write. You can't just, you know, put another one out tomorrow because that one just didn't work out. Yeah. So the, the YA situation seems particularly fraught. Well, what I think is interesting about the YA situation is that it's actually adults driving it. It's yeah, adults absolutely. on Twitter. Absolutely. Um, and from some of our reading, it seemed as if the actual target audience for the book, teenagers, are like, no, 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 let's read the book and then decide. Let's not just pile on, which um, I think might be an interesting generational shift that we're mm -hmm. about to see happen. Yeah, but I also wonder, I mean, um, just based on what little knowledge I have of the teenage Twitter sphere, which is minimal, but not <laughs> non-existent, um, I feel like sometimes teenagers, especially like progressive-minded teenagers, are also um, in a mode where they're like testing out morals to be like, oh, that thing is bad. Like I've heard and read things that tell me that that thing is bad. So I'm going to exercise, mm -hmm. um, you know, or ex experiment with exercising my right. power by saying that thing is bad yeah. and, and people shouldn't read that or that author shouldn't publish that book. Right. And that actually feels, you know, devoid of the particular context. That feels like a good thing of saying, you know, again, living your values, right. shouting out your values, trying to persuade advocating those are really positive things but yeah yeah do you guys ever get annoyed by cancel culture on twitter personally i mean i always think like there but for the grace of goddess <laughs> go i like i you know as as hard as i try to not be bad like uh, i also sometimes tweet at three in the morning and like <laughs> who knows what sorts of things i or like taken out of context from my brain things will like pop out and, and I could be canceled at a moment's notice. Well, I think that's what bugs people about it is that it, it's like such tiny things sometimes that can, t can be taken out of context that it doesn't feel like, okay, like Chick-fil-A, this is a company right. and a person with a pattern of hateful behavior versus someone who like says something a little bit wrong on Twitter or mm. like maybe just misunderstood yeah, something. Yeah, and I feel like when I've been, you know, piled onto, I, my response, even though I know I'm being defensive is to say, you know, I'm so flawed, but this, you're wrong on this one. <laughs> this one I was okay. You didn't read it, or you didn't read it with the right tone, or you don't know me, and yeah, you don't know me. Um, but I just can't tell if that's what people always think, or if actually I was, I'm a bad person, and yeah. they were right. <laughs> Um, well, tweet at June and let her know. <laughs> right, I know. Think. It's like between everyone in this room, we could probably get an exhaustive account of your Twitter feed and to tell you if you've ever said anything problematic. <laughs> um, should we move on to our recommendations? Let's. Uh, well, mine is sort of about canceling, so Ooh. maybe I'll go first. So I don't know if y'all have seen the new um, HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland. It's about Michael Jackson, lots of nods in the room. Um, Slate ran uh, what I think was a really fantastic package on the documentary. We put a lot of time and resources into it, like weeks before it came out. A lot of people watched it. Um, the lead essay of the package was um, by a guy, Carl Wilson, and um, the title, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's basically why it's too late to cancel Michael Jackson um, and sort of the inefficacy of cancel culture as it pertains to a legend like him whose music is everywhere, who's, who's music's tentacles are in every song that is popular now. Um, and also who is dead and whose estate is extremely wealthy and powerful and who still has a ton of diehard fans. Um, but the piece, it's not hopeless. Um, it's very searching and it, it talks about how we can still t make meaning of this abuse or alleged abuse. 
um, in terms of what it means about child stardom and um, how, how children get put into um, places where they're at risk of exploitation. And now to recommend something not slate related because I kind of <laughs> felt like I was, you know, wanking off just then. Um, on the plane right here, I watched The Favorite. <laughs> you guys seen it? No. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> it's, uh, I consider it like one of the best movies I've seen. Uh, I was like aroused and disturbed and like chilled <laughs> to the a, bone. On a trans-Pacific airplane ride. Yeah, I feel I'm, bad for the people in my row. I was like, <gasps> like constantly <laughs> making audible noises. Um, but if you haven't seen it yet, make a point of seeing it. Rachel Weiss. <laughs> Chef's kiss. That wasn't available on my plane. <laughs> the people around you, thank you. <laughs> um, I watched Molly's Game, which was not going to be my recommendation, but if no one, uh, if anyone has not seen that, I would recommend it, particularly it's a plane movie. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a story of uh, high stakes. Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain as like a, a, like a poker um, ringleader kind of mall kind of person. It's great. Um, anyway, my real recommendation is annoying because it's not out until the summer. But oh, I think you're bragging a little bit <laughs> that you have like advance notice of something. Uh, it's a book. Uh, yes, I guess I am. I guess I'm <laughs> a jerk. Um, it's a book called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo. Um, and it's sort of a deep anthropological look at the. Um, Sex, sex lives of three women in America um, of different ages. Uh, one of them lives on the East Coast, two of them live in the Midwest. And it's written like a novel, essentially. It's deeply reported. She worked on it for eight years. Um, wow. And it reads like a novel. Um, and I'm saying it now because I want everyone to pre-order it and I want, I want to make you guys uh, talk about All it. Right. It sounds really good. Um, but it's sort of like... Um, if, if anyone here has read uh, the Gay Talese book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, it's sort of an updated version of that for 2019. Um, probably the most compelling of the three women's t- stories is a young woman named Maggie, who when she was 17 had an affair with her um, high school teacher and several years later decided to go to the police and, and wow. that the fallout from that um, is, uh, is, is covered in the book and is really compelling and makes you think about a lot of things in different ways. So Three Women by Lisa Sadeo and, and Molly's Game, which is available on Delta flights. <laughs> <laughs> well, since everybody's starting with their plane, re- plane watching, I watched Miss Sherlock, which is uh, a Japanese show, which I loved because it was the Sherlock-Watson uh, relationship, but they're both women, Miss Sherlock, that might have been the tip-off. Um, but the best part was how they managed to uh, make, the, make the sidekick's name because um, her first name was Watto, so she was Watto-san. So, uh, was oh. <laughs> um, so my recommendation is a book that I hope will be available in Australia. It is uh, just out in America. It's called When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan. Um, who is going to be on the next episode of Outward, which everybody should also be listening to, the Slate's LGBTQ podcast. And it's a really beautifully written and really deeply researched history of LGBTQ people in Brooklyn, which, of course, is where I live, and so there's an extra element of interest. But it's just a really... It's also a really fascinating book um, because it's very good at the kind of construction of those identities um, I mean because we all know that like there have always been queer people but they weren't 
they didn't always even maybe see themselves a certain way, they, you know. Or even this, know that was an identity exactly, versus exactly. like a thing you do. Yeah. And it's, he's really good on that. And it's just a really fantastic book. So When Brooklyn Was Queer by Hugh Ryan. I second that recommendation. So thank you so much for coming. We're so happy to have been here and invited here. And it's awesome to see all yeah. your faces. Um, first of all, I just want to thank the All About Women Festival for having us. This was amazing. Thank you to Nakia Louie, our producer, Danielle Hewitt, who's here with us, our production assistant, Alex Barish, Faith Smith, and Kirsten Holtz-Naim, who are events people at Slade who set this all up. And thank you, our incredible audience, for coming. This means a lot to us. So for Noreen Malone and Jude Thomas, I'm Christina Cotterucci. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.